You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, could I invite you to take, take your seats for the final session, the final session of this centenary symposium. Um, I would I first like to thank um, I would first like to thank Conor Cruz O'Brien for bringing us all together. Um, I think it's been a remarkable uh, symposium. I, unfortunately, I couldn't be here yesterday uh, because, as it happens, I was editing from the archives of RTE Radio uh, the second instalment of. Uh, some features on Conor Cruz O'Brien, which I will be broadcast on Sunday morning next. Um, Good excuse. Good excuse. An excellent excuse. And a very difficult uh, challenge, I may tell you. And let me share one thing with you, though, because it's related to the last session. In in the tapes, Conor Cruz O'Brien says he he himself is in favour of a united Ireland, united by consent. Now, that's no surprise to the people in this room, but it will probably come as a surprise to many people outside it, because he has been uh, typecast as a sort of, um, somebody who's opposed to, to uh, Irish unity. His own preferred outcome would be, of course, a much more benign and would be based on consent. And um, as I say, that would not be a surprise. And in fact, if anything, his final uh, statement on Irish u- unity, which was the in, in his memoir, which came unstuck when it gave a headline to the Sunday Independent, which then gave an opportunity to Michael McGimsey and Stormont to read o- to hold open the newspaper in front of the camera when Robert McCartney, who was then the leader of Connor's party, the United Kingdom Unionist Party, um, where Connor favoured a united Ireland and was recommending that Ulster Unionists join it, the better to confront uh, because we were all in this together, as it were, to confront the IRA and didn't want the peace process to, to have an, as an outcome so, so, much, um, so many concessions uh, to the IRA. But before I start, I want to make one point about the States of Ireland and its readership. There was no need for the for States of Ireland to have a significant readership because at the same time, Conor Cruz O'Brien was the most... Uh, influential and the most articulate and the most uh, widely spoken and published uh, columnist, politician, lecturer, writer, writer of letters to the Irish Times, columnist with the Irish Times at at that time. Uh, So the the central thesis in the book was being broadcast in all senses of that word, i.e. the original of the word broadcast is scattering your seed it, to, on the wind, it's a biblical, a biblical reference, and and Connor was scattering this key idea so widely that only people who were deaf or blind or who didn't or who were illiterate didn't know his thesis. So there's no mystery about the impact of states of Ireland. It was something that he would readily speak. He would cross the road, as it speak to three people about it if if he if he thought they had an interest, and he did that, of course, as a constituency TV. He he, um, he he wore out a lot of shootouts, as a, particularly in his first uh, election campaign. So anyway, that's just by the by. Um, I had many many uh, 
connections with Connor Cruz or into his professional connection with Connor Cruz O'Brien, and he was always um, he, he was an exciting broadcaster because he was heretical and he could come out with surprises. <laughs> Anybody who's in broadcasting at that time will, will tell you that. Our first speaker <laughs> is Dennis Kennedy. He was with the Irish Times for 17 years, uh, from 1968. He was its deputy editor in the last uh, four years of that period. He was also head of the European Commission Office in Northern Ireland. He has a degree in modern history from Queen's and a PhD in politics from Trinity. He's author of The Widening Gulf, A Study of North-South Relations and of Living with the European Union, the Northern Ireland Experience. Would you welcome Dennis Kennedy. Thank you very much. When I first saw the draft programme for this seminar with the array of speakers and topics, I was reminded of a childhood storybook that I had in the last century, the last millennium actually. It was a young person's illustrated Gulliver's Travels. On the cover was a large uh, picture drawing of the young Gulliver lying on his back, uh, pinned down by a network of ropes, all over him, up and down ladders, swarmed an army of Lilliputians, equipped with notebooks, measuring tapes, magnifying glasses. Some were disappearing into his pockets, others were peering up his nostrils into his ear holes, all trying to make sense of this great giant among them. Now having thus insulted all my fellow speakers, <laughs> I regard myself as the least, as the most illiputian of them all. I speak as someone who knew Connor Cruz, knew him for many years, not as a close, intimate, constant uh, disciple. I first saw him, and again I can claim, claim seniority over people like Brendan here, I saw him first in, I think, 1954, as a young undergraduate, myself that is, at Queen University in Belfast, when Connor came to speak on a partition. Uh, no doubt representing his lord and master, Sean McBride, or his successor in that post. Uh, he made a terrific impression on me, uh, largely, uh, first of all, with his exquisite or ridiculous high-class Dublin accent. Never heard anything like it. Uh, he spoke with great fluency, and he completely quashed his opponent. Unfortunately, I can't remember a single word of what he said. <laughs> Thereafter, we met occasionally, mainly through friends, particularly Michael McInerney, uh, and from some spasmodic correspondence. Now, I want to consider two main criticisms of Connor, of Connor as regards the North. First, did he, as Roy Greenslade of The Guardian has claimed, flip-flop from passionate Irish nationalism in the 1950s, to attracting it in the 1970s, becoming a card-carrying unionist in the 1990s, and reverting in the end to arguing for United Ireland. Second, was he right when he denounced the Belfast Agreement as appeasement of the IRA and claimed it would bring not peace but would exacerbate the existing hostility between the two communities in Northern Ireland? I don't think he flipped off. There's a discernible progression in his thinking away from a very strong Catholic nationalist, even Republican family background, uh, to not, I think, becoming an Ulster Unionist, but being sufficiently disenchanted 
with Irish nationalism that he not only became a member of a Unionist party, but president of it, before leaving it in a row over his sudden advocacy of a united Ireland. The transition, the transition may have had early roots in a non-Catholic education at Sanford Park and TCD, but despite having northern friends at Trinity, including white to be Christine, and despite a few months uh, teaching in Belfast Royal Academy, there's little indication of any particular interest in the North. From 1948, he was obliged to talk and write, if not necessarily to think too deeply about partition. As the young civil servant at the head of the Irish News Agency, John McBride's propaganda unit and external affairs. And that job involved frequent trips to the North. His Parnell and his party, published in 1957, shows a not, a not a lot more awareness of the North than did Parnell. However, in his forward to the shaping of modern Ireland, written in September 1959, he accepts the inevitability of partition, dismissing the assumptions both of moderate nationalists that Ireland could be united by parliamentary process and of Sinn Féin generally, that some military victory was possible. The late 1950s saw the IRA border campaign, now almost forgotten, but it was a major emergency, with hundreds in turn, six REC men murdered, 32 wounded, eight IRA men killed, police barracks sandbagged as in wartime, and these special patrols manning roadblocks. All this was food for thought, the young O'Brien, busily campaigning for the same goal for which the IRA was fighting. He refers to it in passing as an absurd and tragic war, in quotation marks, on occupied Ireland, again in quotation marks. A decade later, he blushed to recall the time spent working professionally for anti-partition. The only positive result for himself, he wrote in 1966, was it led him to discover the cavernous inanities of anti-partition. So we have to thank Sean McGrath for something. <laughs> uh, he said that in, in The Embers of Easter, which he wrote for the Irish Times in ninth, at the 50th anniversary of the Easter writing, writing, it was not rereading it now, a radically revisionist piece attacking the rising or its commemoration, but a call to look back across the half century and ask what went wrong. In particular, to realise that the state created as a result of the rising had been best based on ideals impossible to attain, and that it was fantasy to continue to assert that they could be attained. In the 1960s, the real revisionist, I think, was not Connor Cruz, who was mostly busy elsewhere, but Sean Lamas, of a sort. From, that, uh, from his first policy, from the first his policy was to stop talking and shouting about partition, accept it as fact, and get along with it. He dropped the term six counties and made it an official practice to call Northern Ireland Northern Ireland, something that half a century on, two successive Sinn Féin deputy first ministers of the said Northern Ireland still find a bridge too far. In 1963, uh, Carl Cruz had said in an interview that to accept partition as a fact is the best way of beginning the process of ending it. That was a long way from campaigning against partition, but could still be seen as an orthodox, orthodoxically the mass nationalist in that it implied the desirability of ending it. In January 1965, Lamas took provisionism a bit further when he drove through the grandiose gates of Stormont to meet Terence O'Neill in the Parliament buildings of Northern Ireland in a remarkable de facto act of recognition. Events happened and changed things. 
In the Ireland that Conor Cruise returned to in 1969, there was no shortage of events. The civil rights movement, followed by street disturbances, escalating to major riots and violence, leading to the start of a new IRA campaign and the appearance of the provisional IRA in 1971. For Conor Cruise personally, as we heard from Brendan, the first big event was the election uh, for the Irish Labour Party to the Dáil and his appointment as frontbench spokesman for Northern Ireland. As Ireland IRA violence increased, he devoted himself to what was a one-month campaign initially to steer the Labour Party membership away from ambivalence towards sympathy with or even support for acts of terrorism uh, purportedly carried out in the pursuit of Irish nationalist goals. As this, as this period has been covered in previous sessions, I'll simply record that Conor Cruz opposed the inclusion of, of Council of Ireland as framed in the Sunnydale Engagement, was against the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 85, and in the 1990s was highly critical of the Hume-Adams Dialogue, personally critical of John Hume, and of the whole so-termed peace process. In 1988, he vehemently opposed the Belfast Agreement. In May of that year, he appeared alongside Ian Paisley on the platform of the Ulster Hall before a packed anti-agreement audience, boisterously denouncing, they, not Connor, but denouncing the agreement, a move that brought shock to many of his friends and supporters in the North and denunciation across the board in the South. Why did he do it? Partly, I think, because of a simple rule he had enunciated to me over lunch about 1980, discussing the Northern Ireland problem, what was happening, he broke off and said, look, whatever it is, if it helps Sinn Féin and the IRA, we're against it. If it hurts them, we're for it. <laughs> in May 1988, he was convinced that the agreement was a massive concession to the IRA. He also saw that Paisley was the loudest and the strongest voice against it. And I think it was the same dictum that lay behind his supposed relapse into nationalism in following October when he advised unionists to do a deal with Dublin and quit the United Kingdom. The UK, he believed, had put the appeasement of terrorism as its top priority and worst was to come for the Unionists. Better for them to jump now than be ditched later. And perhaps I think more to Connor's heart than the Unionists' welfare, such a move would, at a stroke, deprive Sinn Féin of its entire raison d'etre and deliver a mortal blow to that party's political aspirations, both north and south. Now, I think he did it too because he loved drama. Not just writing it, but also... As he once said of Yeats, he loved playing a part in real-life drama. He was never content to be an academic, commentator, or journalist. He wanted to be on the stage and in the leading role. His main appearances included the UN in the Congo, heading university in Nkrumah's Ghana, being editor-in-chief of Observer, sitting down against Vietnam in New York, and being a TD and a government minister. How could he possibly turn down a one-night stand in the holiest of holies of Ulster Unionism, on the boards where Charles Dickens, Randolph Churchill, and Edward Carson had stood, and from which Winston Churchill had been barred. <laughs> he paid for it, of course, like all actors, in rotten notices. Vinton O'Toole gave him a stinker in the Irish Times, <laughs> listing all the evil doings of Paisley and damning Connor by association. But the sting was in the headline, not, I presume, written by Vinton. It read simply, Cruz O'Brien proud to be a Paisleyite. <laughs> now, headlines are always misleading, but that's a particularly nasty one. 
Connor had said he was happy to be an ally of Paisley in defence of the Union. By that he meant opposing the Belfast Agreement and opposing Sinn Féin and the IRA. That did not make him a Paisleyite. No more than joining the Unionist Party for the same reason made him a Unionist. No more than advising Unionists to what opt for United Ireland to thwart Sinn Féin made him an Irish nationalist. Connor Cruz dated his own first serious question of Irish nationalism to the start of Provo violence in 1971. From 1971 until now, he wrote in 1994, I have been combating an Irish Catholic imperialist enterprise, the effort to force the Protestants of Northern Ireland by a combination of parliamentary terror and political pressure into United Ireland that they don't want. And he said, so long as Irish nationalism did not involve collusion with the Irish through Sinn Féin, he could still regard himself as an Irish nationalist, but not any longer. In 1966, when he joined Bob McCartney's UK Unionist Party, he argued that it was the logical conclusion to a political, intellectual and moral process which began just after Sunningdale in 1973, when he found and publicly declared that he could no longer work for a United Ireland as that would make him an ally or an accessory of those who were murdering for the same end. I would argue that there is a coherent line of development in his thinking on the North from his earliest encounters with the problem. Between 69 and 71, there was a radical change, not of direction, but of emphasis. In late 69, he was still calling for support of equality of rights in Northern Ireland and the abolition of what he called Stormont's institutionalised caste system, while making it clear that this is not the same thing as calling for Irish unification. What happened between 69 and 71, of course, was the start of the IRA campaign of violence. And it was opposition to this that dominated his stance from then on. He saw the Belfast Agreement as the culmination of a long process of appeasement. He had argued forcefully, uh, and at many places, that in principle the negotiation, negotiation with terrorists was no way to end terrorism. Bargaining with terrorists was to concede parity of moral ground, and to compromise was to offer rewards to terrorists for stopping what they should never have been doing. Uh, he also argued that negotiating was to encourage terrorists in the belief that they were not defeated. Was the Belfast Act, uh, Belfast Agreement, an act of appeasement? In 1999, Connor Crowes wrote a short paper entitled Malign Changes and Benign Labels for an Irish Association Conference. Mo Mullen had described continued violent acts, including murder by the IRA, in areas under control as internal housekeeping. Connor uses this as an illustration of how the collapse of the rule of law is tolerated <coughs> under a benign label as part of the peace process, which is in itself a benign label for appeasement of terrorists. The Belfast, or more benignly, the Good Friday Agreement, is full of benign labels. A text of more than 11,000 words, designed to end 30 years of terrorism, uses the word terrorist only once, and that in, direct, in reference as to how we deal with future Arabs getting beyond themselves. Uh, all uh, local terrorists... Uh, had become, in Belfast Agreement, paramilitaries, a neutral term that can mean a part-time or a semi-professional soldier. There's no suggestion that arms illegally held should be surrendered. The word surrender does not appear at all in the Belfast Agreement. Instead, illegally held weapons are to be decommissioned by those illegally holding them under the supervision 
as it turned out, of two rather elderly clergymen. As the agreement was negotiated under the fiction that no terrorists, only political parties, were involved, the only obligation put on the signatories to it was to use any influence they may have to achieve the decommissioning of all paramilitary arms. Of course it was appeasement, but so what if it weren't? Almost 20 years on from it, we've not seen violence on anything like the scale of the years before the agreement. Life in Northern Ireland has returned to normal. The province has seen more than modest growth and development, including, to everyone's amazement, a thriving tourist <coughs> industry. So some of Conor Cruz's predictions were simply wrong. The provisions of the agreement were implemented. The assembly and executive set up with Sinn Féin included. The RUC was disbanded all without the near-civil war he had forecast. But was he wrong when he wrote in April 1998 that this agreement does not herald the coming of peace in Northern Ireland? On the contrary, its repercussions will exacerbate the existing hostility between the two communities, thereby fanning the violence that comes from that hostility. The armistice was an armistice, not a peace treaty, and the armistice was held. Though the official assessment of risk of security-related violence, which is the official term for terrorism in Northern Ireland, it remains severe, just one category below the highest triple grade. Here are the statistics for the past year, 2017, 16 to 17. Five people were killed. There were 94 casualties of paramilitary-style secret beatings. There were 61 shooting and 29 bombing incidents. 45 firearms were seized and 20 75 kilograms explosives were found. Small beer compared to the height of the troubles, but hardly reflecting a normal, peaceful society. The agreement is in more obvious and serious trouble at the political level. For nine months, ten months, we have had no executive in the North and a malfunctioning assembly. Sinn Féin and the DUP have been unable to agree, meaning there has been no provincial government. In a very real sense, the agreement is not working. Yet in one sense it has worked to malign effect, the near destruction of the middle ground of Ulster politics. The UK election in June saw the elimination of both the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP from the House of Commons. The agreement which was predicted to bring moderate unionism and nationalism together in a new peaceful demonstration has reduced the SDLP and the UUP to big players in the political scene with alliance just holding on. We might note that in 1998, Sinn Féin had one TD in Dáil Today it has, I think, 23. Hmm. Is the Belfast Agreement to blame? Under it, all MLAs at Stormont have to declare themselves unionist, nationalist or other. And this tribal allegiance is built into the voting system. Seats in the executive are automatically allocated according to party strength, with the plum of first minister going to the biggest party. The result is an irresistible impulse towards winner-takes-all in the two tribal camps. It is the agreement and the manner of its implementation which has ensured that the most extreme party on each side has eclipsed all others. Just how that came about we may discuss later. Was the appeasement necessary to stop the IRA campaign? By the early 90s, the pro leadership was admitting privately that things were going badly for the provost. There was no breakthrough on the political front. The SLP was still the party of choice of, of most nationalists. 
There was war weariness in the heartland Catholic areas of Belfast and Derry, where security measures weighed heaviest. The provosts were being claimed uh, by Catholics for provoking the loyalist campaign of random killings of people in Catholic areas. The bombings in Great Britain had not produced any movement, and as we now know, the penetration of the uh, provisional by British security forces was such that this was possibly the greatest concern of all. No wonder they made or responded to overtures from Downing Street. Their objective, which they largely achieved, was to end their war without admitting defeat and without surrendering anything, particularly <coughs> not the fantasy of the true republic declared in 1916. Certainly the not, not the right of Irishmen to assert every generation uh, in arms the sovereignty of that republic, even if they'd agreed for the time being to refrain from doing so. The heritage had to be preserved for another generation, and so it has been. In 1923, a similar but not totally comparable situation, de Valera tried to make terms with the government of the Free State to end the Civil War. He sent a list, a list of conditions to Cosgrave, who replied promptly, no talks, no negotiations, until you surrender all arms and acknowledge the legitimacy of the state. There were no talks, there were no negotiations, but within months the Civil War was over, and within a couple of years, Dev had entered the doll, and while still fantasizing about Pierce's Republic, he and his party were finished with guns, apart from a momentary stumble in the early 1970s. Two, <laughs> two decades on from the Belfast Agreement, at political level, community missions in the North have been institutionalized and cemented, as Conor Cruz feared. I'll end with two quotations, one from Conor's widow, Mara, and the other, albeit indirectly, from Connor himself. Uh, in her uh, book, As Old as the State, Maura Cruz O'Brien wrote, Connor has rendered a signal service to both communities on this island. He has shown that a basic belief in the primacy of justice can transcend, transcend even the most cherished tribal varieties. And this, finally, from the Old Testament book of Amos. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That was read at Conor Cruz O'Brien's funeral, no doubt selected, I think, by Conor himself, and surely his way of saying, a plague on you, a plague on all your nationalisms and imperialisms and any other dangerous fantasies you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Our next, our next speaker is Susan McKay. She's a writer and journalist from Derry, author of Northern Protestants and Unsettled People, and the book on the legacy of the Northern Irish conflict, Bear in Mind These Dead. Susan McKay. Thank you, John. <coughs> Pussy Riot is coming to the Mandela Hall at Queen's University, Belfast. World is crazier and more of it than we think, incorrigibly plural. Yes, Lou McNeese's celebration of the drunkenness of things being various is to be perceived in today's Northern Ireland. Jailed by Russian President Vladimir Putin for hooliganism motivated by religious hatred, these women in their vividly coloured balaclavas will bring their mix 
of punk, electronica, theatre, documentary footage and protest to the venue named after the South African freedom fighter turned peacemaker turned president at the university named in honour of the Queen of England, now wildly popular here in the Republic. Is it, what, it was at Queen's in 1978 that Conor Cruz O'Brien, addressing the Northern Connection in Irish-British relations, said that the reason many people could not see that Irish nationalism and unionism were incapable of reconciliation was because this idea was, quote, so desolatingly devoid of all comfort, unquote. Judging by the scramble to exit the House of Commons on Tuesday when the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland stood up to speak, the very notion of being made to think about Northern Ireland at all has become desolatingly devoid of all comfort. The most interesting thing about James Brokenshire is his name. <laughs> Was there ever a Secretary of State from Northern Ireland with a more Dickensianly appropriate one? <laughs> and it was indeed a message of more brokenness in Ulstershire that he stood to deliver. What he said to the half dozen or so not nimble enough to escape was extraordinary. He said that the politicians had not at this point reached agreement and that in the absence of a budget, Northern Ireland was about to run out of money. The Northern Ireland, of, the Northern Ireland office, the NIO, would therefore present one which would, he said, incorporate figures provided by the Northern Ireland Civil Service reflecting their assessment of the outgoing priorities of the previous executive. Expect this winter, then, to see lots of farmers approaching the handles of their shed doors wearing oven gloves against the heat. <laughs> Expect crocodiles bas basking with vicious intent in the tropical slurry pits of Down and Antrim. <laughs> the Irish government responded to the news that after ten months without an executive at Stormont, the talks had ended without resolution by saying that it was up to the British government to ensure good governance in Northern Ireland. The British propose, however, to rely on the recollections of the civil servants. <laughs> it was noticeable that when the humiliated and all but defeated Theresa May paid a billion for the support of the DUP in Parliament earlier this year, the British media reacted as if Ian Paisley had not sat at Westminster since the 1970s. There was much hilarity about the dinosauric social views of the party that does not believe in dinosaurs. <laughs> it has been apparent for years now that power sharing at Stormont was not working. Hardly any legislation enacted, routine abuse, especially by the DUP, of the petition of concern mechanism to block anything that the other side favoured. Failure to agree on priorities on all of the big public spending issues, notably education and health, and the shameful neglect of the legacy issues left over from the Troubles. The economically deprived areas in which paramilitarism flourished in the 1970s and 80s are still the most economically deprived areas today. The phenomenon of transgenerational trauma has become apparent. Suicide heavily concentrated in these areas and among the grandchildren of people who were caught up in the conflict is the new killer among the young. The absence of violence has not been replaced by the presence of civility. I don't know if any of you were watching, as I did last night, uh, BBC One's discussion of the, the collapse of the talks. A Sinn Féin spokesman in Belfast spoke inscrutably about the end of the talks, with his back ostentatiously turned to a screen on which a DUP spokesman from Derry stroke Londonderry spoke about the end of the talks. The DUP man sniggered and shook his head incredulously as a Sinn Féin man spoke. The absence of mutual respect was startling, 
even to those of us who were never convinced by the Peter and I assurances given by the late Martin McGuinness when the relationship between the First and Deputy First Ministers was questioned, nor by the new beginnings, frozen smiles of McGuinness and Arlene Foster. The British and Irish governments have been talking up the narrowness of the gaps which remain between the parties in the North. They neglect to mention the fathomless, the fathomless depths beneath. The astute commentator Alex Kane, formerly a spokesman for the UUP and before that election agent for Enoch Powell, wrote early last week, we are even failing at failure these days. <laughs> and he was uh, decent enough to note that he was quoting The Simpsons, not Samuel Beckett. <laughs> <laughs> When McGuinness resigned, his speech suggested that power sharing with Arlene had been like an abusive marriage in which he had put up which he had put up with for the children, for the sake of the children, but could no longer tolerate. Miss Foster's liking for Louboutin shoes had, it seems, distracted from evidence that she was as hardline a unionist as old Lord Brookborough, in whose Fermanagh village she resides. There can be no doubt but that her scornful intransigence has hardened attitudes among nationalists, republicans and others, because there are still others. The demand for an Irish Language Act symbolises a demand for the parity of esteem the Good Friday agreed, Agreement was meant to introduce. So the North is left with what Professor David Whitehead has called a limbocracy, a fragile state profoundly destabilised, to quote Professor Colin Harvey, by Brexit, and with no voice in the negotiations for that. Everything has become muddled. 56% of, of Northerners voted to remain in the EU, 44% to leave, but they are leaving. It isn't a good political scenario. The two overwhelmingly dominant parties, the DUP and Sinn Féin, have all but eclipsed all of the others. Small, interesting parties that were part of the negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement were crushed and defeated during the relentless process towards a sectarian carve-up. Um, <clears throat> I wrote, uh, have an essay which was published in a, a book uh, last week about um, feminism in Northern Ireland during the 1980s, uh, when Margaret Thatcher was in power and was out nevering Paisley as well as getting designated, if any of you remember, as Thatcher the Milk Snatcher for her social policies, which look rather mild compared with the policies of the current Tory party in the UK. At the launch in Belfast on Wednesday of the book, the poet Ruth Carr spoke of the Thatcher period and then of these equally bleak times, which I find surprising but have been thinking a lot about since. Councillor Julianne Corr Johnson tweeted this week with a picture of her and her partner holding their baby, Quote, it's been ten months. I've conceived and delivered the next generation that is evidently condemned to the same cycle of unmet need. However, Councillor uh, Cor Johnson is a gay woman with a working class unionist background and she typifies a new generation of activists who are not waiting for the politicians to bring social change. During the long decades of the conflict, campaigners for social change, and I was one of them, were regarded as irrelevant. The national question was the only one deserving of public attention. The only violence which got attention was the violence which was called the violence. The rights of women, gay people and minorities languished in an imposed silence as if under a 1950s candlewick bedspread. <laughs> And this despite the heroic efforts of the likes of Jeff Dudgeon, who I see here today, to save sodomy from Ulster. 
<laughs> These days, Stormont is largely used as a photo opportunity for campaigners. Trust women, anti-Brexiteers dressed up as customs men at the foot of the long drive, with Edward Carson gesticulating furiously behind them. Last night in the Great Hall, watched over by a solemn-faced James Craig, Viscount of Craig Avon, animatronic, founder of Witches Against Fascist Totalitarianism and musician with the Scissor Sisters, gave a TEDx talk about transhumanism, transhumanism, and the impact of robotics on gender definitions. Feminist historians have refused to be excluded from the so-called decade of centenaries. Loyalists, feminists, and others. Lawyers, feminists, not loyalists. Lawyers, feminists, and others are using the human rights machinery of the Good Friday Agreement to change Northern Ireland, despite the absence of the Assembly and the Executive. The Human Rights Commission has taken a case to the British Supreme Court to argue that the rights of women under the European Convention of Human Rights are being violated by the ban on abortion in Northern Ireland. The court, the court heard that a report recommending change was suppressed by the executive before it collapsed. Gronja Taggart of Amnesty outlined the case, while Sarah Ewart spoke of the physical and mental torture, the trauma and humiliation that she experienced when she was banished to England to abort her much-wanted baby. Lawyers for Shannon Sickles and Gronja Close have also cited their rights under the ECHR after the DUP vetoed a 2015 Assembly vote in favour of gay marriage. The brilliant young solicitor Dara Macken has led recent cases in which the British government was found to have carried out torture on the so-called hooded men in the 1970s and that the PSNI was in contempt of court for failing to address the issue of collusion in relation to families bereaved by the Mid-Ulster Ulster Volunteer Force. Ambivalence about violence is not confined to nationalist and Irish politicians. And there is a problem not just with illegally held weapons, but with the illegal use of legally held weapons. Today's Irish News features stories arising from the investigative documentary No Stone Unturned by Oscar-winning director Alex Gibney and journalist Barry McCaffrey of Fine Point Films. The film raises serious questions about the police investigation of the Lockan Island massacre in 1993. Work on this documentary relied significantly on the Office of the Police Ombudsman. And I would contend that the fellow travellers mentality to which Conor Prince O'Brien so strongly contributed has shut down exploration of a lot of, of these issues which are now uh, thriving in a most unhealthy style. As a journalist, I was never able to forgive Conor Cruz O'Brien for the folly and abuse of power involved in sacking the late, brilliant Mary Holland from The Observer in 1979. He made himself then, as Seamus Mallon said, the clown prince of British journalism. The existential metamorphosis of which he described, which saw him turn unionist, led him in later years to join the foolish Bob McCartney, now a campaigner for elitist education in the UK, then leader of the UKUP. I fear greatly that by now Dr O'Brien's formidable intellect would have led him to the dead-end politics of Jim Allister, who feels vindicated by the incapacity of Irish nationalism and unionism to reconcile. So is the scene desolatingly devoid of all comfort? I don't think so. One of those speaking at Stormont last night was the young journalist and gay rights campaigner, Lyra McKee. She talked about the importance of empathy in engaging with the Christian churches and Islamic faith in Northern Ireland on gay issues. We are moving into an era of feminism. 
The essayist Rebecca Solnit has written in her new book that the failure of empathy and respect in politics is not marginal, as it has been assumed to be, but central. Professor Mary Baird has written in her new book that you can't fit women and outsiders into a structure already coded as male. You have to change the structure. Kylie Noble is a fine young writer from Fermanagh, and she has described her transition from the unquestioning unionism of her childhood to a different sort of politics. The sad news is she's gone to London and isn't sure she'll return. You think Belfast is great when you're a student because you're drunk all the time, she told me. When you sober up and look for a career and some respect, you realise how normal it is. And I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, by the way, that you don't know any of these names, but mark my words, you will. Anyway, I have decided to be hopeful, still angry, but militantly hopeful even. The the intellectual caste system which uh, Dennis spoke about is ending. It's not ending at Stormont, however. Pussy Riot is coming to the Mandela Hall at Queen's University. I'm with Louis McNeese. World is crazier and more of it than we think. Incorrigibly plural. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Our third speaker is Dagnan Bradoon, Northern Editor for the Irish Times during the negotiations for the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. He was also sometime foreign affairs correspondent and political correspondent. And at another time, he had the responsibility for handling Conor Cruise O'Brien's column in the paper when it arrived. Uh, he left the Irish Times in 2012 and is also author of The Far Side of Revenge, Making Peace in Northern Ireland, and another book, Power Play, The Rise of Modern Sinn Féin. Um. I feel like I should lead you all in a chorus of happy birthday since Conor Cruz O'Brien was born 100 years ago today. Here, here. But we, uh, we hold off on that. Maybe later after we have a few, a few jars up at the Ivy House, right? Um, just on, on a personal, uh, beginning on a personal note, I had the privilege uh, of, of getting to know uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien on a personal level through uh, professional contacts. Uh, as, as John says, I, uh, I used to sub his column in the Irish Times, and uh, I'm, I'm claiming, I wasn't the only one, but I was, think I was the main one, and I'm claiming at least that I subbed the boo-boo column, the, the, the one that he first used, the, he, he got, when Charlie Hawley said that a certain, uh, the arrest of a um, murderer in Not the, in the, uh, in the, Department of the Attorney General was a grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre, and unprecedented. Connor reduced that to Gugu, and uh, of course it's become part of our mythology since then. Uh, You might be interested to know that Douglas Gageby issued an edict that every column, even if Connor was writing about growing flowers and hope, was automatically to go to the lawyers. No matter what what he wrote about, it was to go to the lawyers. That was an absolute order, and he didn't didn't disobey any orders from Douglas Cage, believe me. Um, uh, He used to phone it in, and um, I think on one occasion, somebody would type it up, and... uh, uh, then I, on an occasion uh, he would sometimes go missing and Moira would phone it in for him 
And uh, I remember one that was phoned in was dealing entirely with uh, the work of an Irish language poet, and I never knew that Connor had such an interest. In he <laughs> <laughs> was a man of many parts. <laughs> um, I. Uh, I have all, I've long had an interest in Frank Ryan, the, the Irish Republican who fought in the Spanish Civil War and ended up being, uh, escaping the death penalty and, and being released into Germany where he died. And I was friendly with his sister, and he, he, she, is, she gave me some material relating to her brother. And one of them was an intriguing little, uh, like a, a square announcement of a when Frank Ryan was imprisoned in Spain, um, that Conor Cruz O'Brien would be speaking at a meeting, uh, release Frank Ryan. And uh, since discovered that Conor was a very active anti-Franco activist, I should say. And I asked Conor, I showed it to Conor, and I said, look, this is, you know, at this stage, Conor was, uh, uh, had been in government here and everything. And I said, mm, this doesn't sound like you. And he said, oh, that was my Bolshevik days. <laughs> and uh, it, it reminded, thinking about it, reminded me of a, of a symposium I attended where uh, Connor was speaking and Moira. Now, Connor wasn't on the platform at this stage, but somebody referred to Connor as a Marxist. And, and Moira stepped in uh, and said, no, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit a man, befit a man in his 50s to be a Marxist. This was a year, um, 1973. Um, Connor then came on the platform and, and regaled us with, with, with anecdotes uh, about, uh, for example, one about a, a conference he attended where, where Patrick Kavanagh had two forms of greeting, uh, one of them <coughs> complimentary and the other not. Um, uh, the uncomplimentary one was I, uh, he got the complimentary one, which was, I read your book, it was no good. <laughs> the uncomplimentary, uncomplimentary one was, I didn't read your book, I knew it wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, um, I, I, uh, sorry, I later became a reporter, and, uh, would occasionally have contact with him about various stories. Um, for example, uh, I was doing, I, I used to do the state papers on an annual basis uh, with Dr. Bowman here, and uh, I found this extraordinary story that uh, Connor, while a minister in the government, was under surveillance by the Defence Forces. <laughs> um, so uh, we had some contact about that. Um, uh, sorry about this. Uh, he was, to my uh, generation, initially anyway, he was kind of a, a glamorous figure, even a role model. He was a new left ideologue, and at a time when we were all enthralled to new left politics, and it was the era of <coughs> Tariq Ali and Danny LaRouge and all that. And I recall attending um, a dramatized version of his book to Katanga and back called Murderous Angels, where practically every uh, 
few minutes, there was a round of applause from, from an adoring audience. Um, now, that, 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 that changed, of course, in, in time. Um, now, I want to talk a bit about the period before he went into government. Um, at the time of Bloody Sunday, uh, which was the 30th of January 1972, um, some of you might be surprised to hear that Connor uh, issued a call for the withdraw immediate withdrawal of the paratroops and setting a date for the withdrawal of the entire British army from the north. Um, and he, he writes in his memoirs about how he even made this point to uh, the Home Secretary, Reginald Maudling, the Wednesday after Bloody Sunday. Um, Moira, who, was, who always, I think, was more grounded, is more grounded than, than he was, um, got to wise him up not to, uh, not to get... So not to, she warned me not to exaggerate the post-Derry response. It wasn't a 1916 swing. No terrible beauty was in fact being born. And he writes, so I calmed down and reverted to my former uh, view, um, which, which has been my view ever since, that whatever difficulties might attend the presence of British troops in Northern Ireland, their withdrawal would be followed by the far greater disaster of full-scale civil war. But at the time, he did advocate the withdrawal, uh, the setting of a day for the withdrawal of all British uh, troops from Northern Ireland, and, and he held to that for certainly for a number of weeks. Uh, uh, if you go back and, and, and check the, the, the Irish Times reports, um, the um, while he was, uh, and I'm delighted to see Michael Kennedy here. Um, I know you got a bit of a roast in yesterday, Michael, but I just want to say how much I, I and many others, I'm sure, in this room appreciate the great work that you and your colleagues do with the documents on Irish foreign policy. And um, I was uh, fascinated to read, in I think in the latest volume, uh, Connor's uh, a letter that Connor wrote while he was, uh, I think, in the later, uh, in the 50s, when the anti-partition campaign wasn't, uh, the political campaign was, had faded a bit, he wrote a fascinating uh, analysis where he said, forget about this anti-partition rhetoric and focus instead on the discrimination and the details of that. And it was, in fact, it could, you could see it as a template for, uh, for the, the, the civil rights movement that uh, developed later. Uh, now, as, as I say, Connor was something of a, a new left hero in, in the, be, before he went into dog politics, if you like. Um, he exposed the CIA um, involvement with Encounter magazine, and uh, he was in New York and took part in anti-Vietnam War protests and uh, came out with the immortal words, uh, when a New York policeman kicks you, you stay kicked. Um, now, uh, and indeed, I was uh, kind of surprised to read, although I suppose in retrospect I shouldn't be, when he was a Labour candidate here, uh, Brendan can, 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 
correct me on this if I'm wrong, he was sponsored by the two Republican legends, George Gilmore and, and Padre O'Donnell. Isn't that right? That's what you don't remember. Um, so uh, there were, um, of course, he changed then. Um, the Section 31, uh, I think, came as a disappointment to, to, to some who had been admirers of his in the past. Uh, I think he, whatever about the Section 31 on television and so on, uh, which I don't think damaged him that much politically, he got into, uh, he gave an interview to a, a reporter from, as I recall, the Washington Post, uh, where he, 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 my memory is he produced certain articles from the Irish press, which were, uh, in his view, uh, unacceptably Republican. And uh, he got himself into a, a public uh, spat, or a, a prolonged dispute with Tim Pat Coogan. And, uh, not a good, not a good uh, place to be, and I think uh, that 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 caused him quite a bit of 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 damage. Um, he was uh, very close to Liam Cosgrave. They had worked together in, uh, when Liam was our when we joined the UN. Liam Cosgrave was our first uh, minister. Uh, to, 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 to attend the UN on Ireland's behalf. And uh, they were, he, Connor was, as, as I recall, uh, Noel can correct me here, he was in charge of the UN uh, operation, the Irish UN operation from, uh, from Ivy House, and uh, formed a, a, a close friendship with Liam. Now, there is a, a story going around that Liam Cosgrave said at the UN, uh, it's, sorry, I won't go into Liam Cosgrave impersonation. It's too, it's too soon. Uh, he, he said that the, Irish, uh, the Arabs and the, the uh, Jews should settle their problems like Christians. <laughs> but I have, uh, as recently as today, I have uh, been... Uh, informed by a, a very well-informed source that uh, Cosgrave never said any such thing, but that Connor put it about because Connor was a bit of a rogue and, and a mischief maker. But that Cosgrave, ne however, uh, maybe Cosgrave didn't hear about it or whatever, but he, it didn't affect their, uh, their close friendship. Um, pardon me now, this, the man had such a varied, varied career. It's, it's hard to keep up with. Um, I've also, um, as close as his friendship was with Liam Cosgrave, uh, his, his relationship with the SDLP, uh, with the exception of Jerry Fitt, as has been pointed out, was uh, quite the opposite, not at all friendly. And I've even been told of an occasion when uh, a certain nationalist uh, MP and Connor were uh, having an argument in the Labour Party club on Swinham uh, Street. There was a nice basement club there, wasn't there? I think I even had a drink there myself. Uh, 
knowing about my age probably, and uh, that this nationalist MP who was carrying a, a licensed uh, weapon uh, got so agitated that he fired a shot through the ceiling. Um, I have that on good authority now. Um, uh, now, it, <coughs> there is, I, I, I missed the, the clarification earlier from Noel about Connor's position on Sunnydale, but I think um, his reservations in terms of the Council of Ireland uh, were probably, I think, vindicated. Uh, I think you would have to say that in any assessment of his, his views on the North. Um, I'm also, I was also told, although I haven't been able to trace it, uh, didn't have a chance to trace it, that he was uh, in Derry on one occasion where he was physically assaulted and that this coloured his view uh, on, on the North. Um, and and uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there are people here who can, who can comment further on that. I'd, I'd be very interested in, in that. Um, I think his tragedy politically was that having softened up nationalist attitudes uh, to unionism and, and uh, shown unionists that there was someone who understood their outlook, I think he, he, he moved too far over to the, the unionist uh, viewpoint. And, and I, I, I would think of him as the... I think that damaged him, and that, I think it helped to contribute to his political the loss of his seat. Um, uh, and I think, uh, in a way, he's in, you could you might see him as the Marlon Brando of Irish politics. You know, I could have been a contender um, if he had if he hadn't gone. He thought he really went too far. That uh, you know, as well as trying to teach us to understand the unionist mindset. But he, he really uh, uh, left the nationalists uh, behind in, in the process. Um, like the, uh, I actually interviewed him when he resigned from the UK Unionist Party, and he, well, touchingly, he gave me his letter of resignation, and I mean that was a kind of a uh, really. A, a, gross misjudgment or a wrong analysis of the situation where he, he thought he, he was suggesting that the, the unionists should, 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 were being abandoned by the British that the North was going to become a, a, a Sinn Féin IRA backyard where they were just unionist population would be terrorised in submission and so on and that the unionists should make a deal with the South uh, that's um, I mean it turned out to be grossly uh, over-pessimistic over uh, entirely. Um, and uh, I, I would agree with the, the, I think it was Austin Curry had a, a very good quote, and I think it was in the Jerry Gregg uh, documentary, um, where, uh, just see if I can find the quote now, um, where he said that Dr. O'Brien had been anxious to question republicanism and nationalism, but not so keen to challenge the traditional attitudes of unionists. And I think, uh, you know, if you were to, if you were to summarise his career, uh, you you would you would have to. Uh, I certainly I would have to agree with that. 
I mean, um, the rest at Declan on questions. We've a number of people. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I just finished there um, that, uh, you know, he was a man I liked very much on a personal level, that I admired his, his intelligence, his writing skills, and uh, his sense of fun. And uh, I think uh, I'm very proud and, and, and privileged to have known him, which I, I don't think, I didn't always agree with him, but. Uh, Happy birthday, Connor. <laughs> <laughs>